Psalm 99 is where we are going to be today. We are working our way through the, uh, the Psalms. First, we began in 95, and then next week we'll finish in uh, in 100, and then we'll go on to something else. I believe we'll, we're going to go into Matthew, back into Matthew for a little bit, and then um, the book of Job uh, for a little while after that. I've kind of been, this week, been planning out a little bit where we're going to be uh, studying and trying to get my, my plans down. We will not be there forever, I promise. I know we were in Matthew for a long time, and we're going to go back to Matthew for a set time. We will not finish that time either, but then uh, we'll go into the book of Job and uh, really a flyby uh, from the book of Job, if you've ever looked through that. it's They're just fantastic truths in, in all of the Word, but uh, specifically in the book of Job. But this morning we're in Psalm 99. And uh, let's pray once more and ask the Lord to help us as we study his word, as we listen to him, and we try to conform our hearts to his word. Father, we come this morning humbly before you. We recognize that our wisdom is useless. Our own efforts, our knowledge, nothing. We look to you for knowledge and wisdom. Specifically, when we look at uh, this idea of worship, we want your thoughts to lead us, not our own. And so we pray that as we study your word, that you would give us eyes to see, ears that would hear, hearts that would believe and obey. Pray that Jesus would be magnified, that we would see him in all his glory. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. As I said, we have been studying the Psalms for the past several weeks, particularly those uh, 95 through 100 that give us instruction about our worship of God. And uh, for the past few Sundays, we have looked at Psalms that teach us and instruct us in worship, particularly uh, because of the reason that God is holy. If you remember, or if you don't, you can peek, at, back, peek back and see in Psalm 96, verse 9, we are instructed to worship the Lord in the splendor or in the beauty of holiness, which causes us to recognize that the holiness of God determines the way that we worship. In other words, worship is to be done on God's terms, not on ours. And I was just sitting there as Kim was reading the scriptures and thinking about what I would what I knew we would see this morning. And a thought came to me, I wonder if you've ever thought if God accepts your worship. I wonder if majority of people that are in church this morning have given any thought to, does God want this type of worship? Is this what He wants or is this what I want to give Him? You think about one of the very first people to offer worship to God was not accepted. In Cain's sacrifice, or Cain's offering. And yet he wanted to bring his form of worship to God, and God did not accept it. And we've seen time and time again through his word, God does not accept certain worship. And yet he is very clear on the type of worship he will accept and the kind of worship that he requires. And so it's important as we study through these Psalms that we pay attention to these, these truths. That God wants worship, but a specific kind, from a specific place. It's not to be done as we feel it is appropriate, but as God ordains it. 
In Psalm 97, last Sunday, we looked at the holiness of God. This time in relation to all of the other false gods of the peoples. Uh, We saw that God is high and lifted up. He's over all of the earth, exalted far above all other gods. He is truly like no one else and nothing else in creation. And in light of the holiness of God, we, his worshipers, are to pursue righteousness and live in ways that reflect his righteous character. Now, if you remember, at the last Sunday of 2019, we covered Psalm 98, which is why we're in Psalm 99 this morning. We're skipping it only because we've already covered it a few weeks ago. Now, in Psalm 99, a very short psalm, the holiness of God is still front and center in our worship. We're given several explanations about God's holiness and one overarching reason for our worship. I want you to notice in verses 3, 5, and 9 that there is a command to praise or exalt or worship God. And all three times the same reason is given because He is holy. So if we can kind of just preview what we're going to see, if you have the outline in the bulletin or if you want to see it as we read through it, Notice in verses 1 through 3, we have the holiness of God's majesty. In verses 4 and 5, we have the holiness of His just rule. or We could say the holiness of His justice or His judgment. And finally, in verses 6 through 9, the holiness of His faithful mercy. And a couple of points is before we get into this. I thought it would be helpful if we also read this with an understanding, uh, an awareness of what is happening uh, in the... Uh, it was recorded here by a, uh, a man named uh, Johann Bengel, uh, that, the, that this psalm has three parts in which the Lord is celebrated as he who is to come, he who is, and he who was. And each part is then closed with this ascription of praise, he is holy. And finally, notice that there will be a building progression from one point to the next, from beginning to end, that will lead us not just to one glorious truth, but actually several truths as we move to to the last one. But notice this progression that each point will build off of the previous one. So if you have your Bible, look at verse number one with me and keep your Bibles open so that we can uh, continue to uh, read them. I'll I'll ask you to turn to a few places as well outside of Psalm 99. So if you'll uh, be ready for that. Notice first the king's holy majesty. That God is the king and he reigns over all the earth. Of course, this is looking forward to the day when God rules and reigns in not just from heaven, but on the earth and all of the people of the earth look to him and acknowledge him as their king. We look around right now. Not everybody acknowledges that, but this these verses are looking forward to that day when that will be a truth and it will be a reality. And God's holiness and His majesty are described to us in particular detail here. And so as we read it, notice that the description of His awe-inspiring power and His awesome presence. If you're using a King James Bible, you'll see the word terrible there. The word terrible in 1611 did not mean the same thing as it means today. If I said, you're a terrible singer, you wouldn't take it as a compliment. But if I told you that 400 years ago, you might have. 
So when the word terrible is, is closer to our word awesome, if I said you're an awesome singer, uh, I think you would take that as a good compliment. Um, the word awesome comes from awe-inspiring. You inspire awe, fear, and, 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 and joy at the same time. And so uh, recognize that this is the, the, the awesome, terrible power and presence of God. And notice uh, verses 1 and 2 and 3 just kind of shotgun uh, uh, truths at us with uh, uh, immediate responses based on these facts. If you look at verse number 1, the Lord reigns. Yahweh reigns. Therefore, in response... Let the peoples tremble. This is, again, a reference to when every knee bows before God. Every tongue confesses that He is the King and He is Lord. Fact number two, or truth number two, in, in the end of verse one, He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Therefore, in response, let the earth shake or quake. This is an interesting uh, imagery as it paints for us here that God's throne is upon or above cherubim. Cherubim are angels, a specific type of angel, and, and it says that God's throne is above them or upon these cherubim. This is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, and I'd like to show you that. And so if you, if you can do it quickly, go to the book of Exodus, please, in chapter 25. Exodus 25, and I'll begin reading in verse 17, and we'll read a few of these verses just to help you to understand uh, if you're thinking about God's throne being on top of angels, what does that exactly mean? Uh, and so if, if we read this, we'll, we'll make a, it'll make a little bit of sense to us. You may already know what I'm talking about, but we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant here. As the Psalms, uh, Psalm, people are reading the Psalms, singing these Psalms, their minds are thinking of the Ark of the Covenant as described to us in Exodus 25. Verse 17 says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another, Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Notice verse 22, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. So this is the Ark of the Covenant that, that symbolized God's presence in Israel. And God gave very specific instructions to Moses how it was to be constructed because this is essentially His throne on earth. And at the very top of the Ark of the Covenant were these two angels with their wings spreading towards each other. And uh, this is where God reigns. He reigns above or upon the cherubim. Now later on in, in the book of 1 Samuel, in chapter 4, uh, the, it says that the people sent to Shiloh and brought there, brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned upon the cherubim. Again, in Psalm 80, we read that God is enthroned upon the cherubim. So this is, is really fantastic imagery as we think about the Ark of the Covenant 
which is, was the, the focal point of Israel's worship. It was at the, the very center of their worship building, the tabernacle, and later on the temple. This represented God's presence among His people and His rule and reign over them, His earthly throne. In verse number 5, we'll see it's called His footstool. Even in First Chronicles, David calls the ark the footstool of our God. And later on in verse number 9, we see that, uh, that the ark is, uh, this, this place, God's presence, is on His holy mountain, Zion. So this is, this is the, 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 the where, the, the fact that God reigns from this place and the earth and the people tremble before Him. Look at the third fact in verse number 2. He is great and exalted in Zion over the peoples. It says in verse 2, the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted. So not only is He enthroned upon cherubim, He is exalted above all the peoples. Therefore, there's our response, let the peoples praise Him. Let the people praise Your great and awesome or terrible name. God is an awe-inspiring name. A name that brings both fear and joy at the same time. The people are commanded to respond to their king in praise because, as it says in verse 3, holy is he. The way that it's worded there, instead of just saying he is holy, by using the word holy first, emphasizes this holiness in a special way that he is holy. But notice that it's not just Israel that is commanded to do this. It's all the peoples, all the nations looking forward to the future. This is the holy king of all the earth. He is awesome in power. Moses sang in Exodus 15, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The psalmist wrote in Psalm 66, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. This is the God that we come to worship. And when we come to worship, we need to have that clear picture of who He is as much as a human being can have of a holy, perfect God. But we want to worship Him in light of His glory and His holiness and His power and His majesty and His strength and His awesome characteristics. This is the God who has descended from heaven to meet with people on earth and to choose a people for Himself and to dwell among them, to live among them and to rule over them as a gracious king. The nation of Israel knew Him as a God who was holy, majestic, but they also knew Him to be very near and worthy of much praise and exaltation. And when we gather to worship, there's no smoking furnace like Mount Sinai. There are no clouds. There's no thunder. There's no... Uh, similar conditions to what Israel experienced in their worship. But we do worship the same God who is great and exalted. And in a sense, we worship in a clearer 
way. We, we worship with better understanding because we see God in the image of Jesus Christ. We recognize that God became a man and dwelt among us. and We beheld His glory. This is a high view of God that we must have if we're going to worship correctly. If we're going to worship in the way that He commands. We can't just come in and do it what we want. We can't come in and decide, you know what, this is what makes me feel good, so this is how we're going to do it. Or this is what the majority of the people voted on, this is how we're going to worship today. What did God want? This is about Him. As we gather each and every day, our view of God must be biblical. It must be holy. Let it affect our worship. But notice then, as we go into the second section here, that this, um, that this majesty and power of the king yields perfect justice. That is, that the almighty king rules with righteousness and judgment. Look at verse number 4. The king in his might loves justice. Now it begins to talk directly to the king. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And then to the people, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. God's rule is no different than His character. His character is holy. His rule is holy. In fact, His holy character determines that His rule will be holy. He's not like other kings of the earth. He's not like mere men who abuse their power who take advantage of people. No, this king loves justice. The word justice is really is the same idea as judgment. The king loves judgment. Not condemning people. But he likes things being done right. He likes fairness. He likes equity. He loves it. Friends, uh, Delich uh, explained, he's a 19th century theologian, he explained it, God is one who governs not according to dynastic caprice, his whims, his impulses, but rather according to moral precepts. Because God loves justice, we see then that he has established equity. He loves it. He has established it. He has set it up. He's made it sure. He has begun this on the earth. Now remember, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant. And in it, contained several items, Aaron's rod that budded, a bowl of manna, and the tables that had the the, the law on them. They were the foundation of His throne. He loves justice, and as we read last week in Psalm 97, righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Literally, part of the building framework of the throne of the ark is righteousness and justice. His law. This is We see God's justice, His judgment, His righteousness in the law as Psalm 19 tells us that His law is perfect. His testimonies are sure. His precepts are right. His commands are pure. And His judgments are true and righteous altogether. And then then we see the progression as it moves on that, that then He executes or accomplishes justice. He loves it. He has established it. He accomplishes it. He executes it in the land for and among His people. 
Israel counted on this. Because when Israel's enemies would oppress them, they could rely on God who would fight for them. They could rest in the God who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 36 says, the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. And they knew that when they had been mistreated and when others would oppress them and attack them, that God would make things right. And the people would praise their king for his righteous rule and his just reign. This king they, they serve is a good and gracious king. He doesn't take advantage of his people like lesser human kings. No, he's the shepherd. He describes himself as a husband, as a father, as a redeemer, a savior, a protector, a provider. And the people are to exalt and worship this king because he is holy in his justice, in his judgment. But that justice goes the other way. Yes, God will judge Israel's enemies. But if you know much Old Testament history, you know that Israel's history is dotted with their own sin and their own disobedience and unbelief. And when God's people sin, He punished them just like He punished their enemies because God's justice is perfect. But this king is not like other kings. For this king is gracious. This king is full of compassion, plenteous in mercy. And so look then at the third, at the third section, that though this king is just, he is also very merciful. Verses 6 through 9, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God. Worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. And we see three important characters here from Israel's history. Moses and Aaron, priests, the the, the leaders of Israel from the very beginning of their establishment as as a nation. And then Samuel, who was the last judge of Israel before they uh, before they had kings, uh, but he was a, a prophet, and, and, and in certain ways that he served as a priest. When the people sinned, God had appointed men to serve Him and to serve the people as priests. And they would intercede between God and man. When God had something for the people, He spoke to them through the priests. When God had, uh, had, when the people had uh, disobeyed God, they went to the priest and he offered the sacrifices for their sins. Aaron, of course, was the first high priest of Israel, and the writer of Hebrews describes to us very plainly, very simply, what the priest's job was. In Hebrews five, it says, "Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed." to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, when it lists these three men, and very specifically these three men, I believe that this is referring more to their ministry of intercession rather than the 
narrow office of the priest. If we want to get really particular, Moses was not technically a priest. Uh, but he did act in ways, if, you, if we think of, of, of in a general sense. Samuel was not technically uh, the high priest, but he did offer sacrifices and he did uh, move on behalf of the people towards God. Notice, for instance, in, in Exodus 32, when Israel sinned by making the golden calf. Do you remember that story? That Moses was up on the mountain and they had made a, a golden calf. Uh, God uh, was ready to destroy them. God, uh, Moses said to the people in Exodus 32.30, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. Referring to that event later on in Deuteronomy 9, he said of that day, then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at that same time. Psalm 106 calls what Moses was doing standing in the breach before God to turn away his wrath from destroying him. That's what Moses was doing. He was interceding on behalf of the people. In the book of 1 Samuel, we find Samuel. And he was the, the judge of Israel. And he was a great judge. But as he grew older, he had appointed his sons to be judges. And they were not as good. And the people said, you know, we don't want this set up anymore. We want a king. We want you to make us a king like all of the other nations. And Samuel knew that this was a great sin to reject a true theocracy to reject truly having God as your king. And he said, we don't want it. We want a man. We want someone we can see. We want someone we can touch and, and approach in, in more casual ways. And Samuel went before God and prayed for them. Later on in chapter 12, when Israel realized the great sin that they had committed in asking for a king, they said this to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You've done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. for They are empty. The Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make a people for make you a people for Himself, and notice He says, "Listen, for more as moreover as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you." That's what Samuel's ministry was: to go be on, uh, to the Lord on behalf of the people, to go to the people on behalf of God. These men led the people to obey God's laws. They warned the people about straying from them. They interceded when the people disobeyed. They prayed and offered sacrifices for the people when they sinned. And God forgave them because God is a forgiving God. 
And, and look at how verses 6, 7, and 8 are laid out that He answers those who call Him. He answers in verse number 7 when they obey His laws. But He also answers in verse number 8 when they disobey and cry out for mercy. He offers forgiveness. But God both forgave the people and then notice the last half of verse number 8, He also judged the people when they sinned. Even at one point in Israel's history, God told the prophet Jeremiah, he said, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Recognizing that they were great mediators, intercessors on behalf of Israel, but they had crossed the line and God was going to bring judgment. But what the psalmist is telling us in Psalm 99 is that God listens when we cry out to Him. And part of worship is prayer. When we cry out to Him and we call to Him for help and for mercy and for blessing and for all the things that we need. But I want you to notice, and what I think this psalm is moving us towards, is that God's mercy comes with justice. Only a holy God can offer perfect justice and mercy. Because the one does not exclude the other. In our setting, in our, in our limitations, our justice to be perfect cannot come with mercy. It's either one or the other, but with God, He avenges their wrongdoings, but He forgives their sin. Alec Matir wrote that forgiveness without chastening would make us complacent. And chastisement without forgiveness would make us despair. If you think about that, if God only judged and never offered mercy, if we were to come this morning and praying without any hope of God's mercy or forgiveness, how awful our situation would be to know we are in sin and there's nothing we can do about it. But at the same time, if we operate on the fact that God forgives, it doesn't really matter what we do as long as we ask for His forgiveness. We're all good. That's dangerous. Derek Kidner instructs us, says that this instructs us here neither to despair of mercy nor to trade on it. Don't live your life knowing, well, God will forgive. It'll be okay. It doesn't really matter what I do. God forgives. But at the same time, Christian, don't live your life thinking, God can't forgive this. There's no mercy for this. This is one time too many. This is a step too far. No, God's forgiveness is always farther than our sin. But we dare not Trample on it. The people are to praise their king for his holiness, both in mercy and in justice. Paul writes in Ephesians that God is rich in mercy. Psalm 78 is a, a lengthy psalm that describes Israel's history. And in verse number 37, it says that Israel's heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant, yet he being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity, and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often, and did not stir up all his wrath. And so, in summary, Psalm 99 instructs the people of God to praise God for His holy character, that is, His power and His majesty. Also, to praise Him for His righteous judgment, that is, His fair and right and complete justice but also to praise Him for the mercy that He provides. Who is a God like you, Micah says? 
pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. The psalmist says the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now this can only be true. The mercy and the justice of God existing together can only be true because of Jesus Christ. We want God to be merciful to us, but God would not be just if He simply wiped it away, if He simply swept it under the rug, looked past it. The way that people often think of forgiveness today is just simply forget about it. Will you forgive me? Will you just let it go? Will you just not not punish me for what I did? Forgive me. But the perfect justice of God meets the perfect mercy of God in that He forgives sin, yet He still judges sin. That's why for our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. God didn't forget about our sin. He judged our sin in Christ instead of in us. The, the, Isaiah says that he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so we, on, in New Testament Christianity, those of us on this side of the cross, can read Psalm 99 and recognize these men, uh, Moses and Aaron and Samuel, as imperfect mediators, but as shadows of the perfect one. As shadows of the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest. He is our intercessor for all of His people. God always hears His prayers. He kept God's law perfectly. He did no wrong, yet He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And that's much of the burden of the writer of, of the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews three. It says, "Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession." It says in chapter seven, "It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests." to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He is both the priest and the sacrifice. It says in chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, that has hold fast our confession. So as we read this, as we sing this, as we pray this, Let us praise our God for His great name, His holy character, because He is holy. Let us humbly worship in His presence and praise Him because He is good and He has righteous judgment. His perfect judgment 
is holy. Let us look to God in Christ and praise Him for His merciful salvation, for His forgiveness, because His mercy and forgiveness are holy. Let's give thanks for the pardon and forgiveness we receive through our High Priest Jesus, who is both our priest who offered the sacrifice and the sacrifice Himself. Let us confidently worship and joyfully offer our praise to our holy God, who both loves justice and loves mercy, and has, who has forgiven us and brought us near to His Son, Jesus.